Welcome to episode six of The Millennial Crisis. This is The Art of Backing Yourself with the sales doctor herself, Ingrid Maynard. Please enjoy my chat with Ingrid. I was so happy to have her on and she really adds some awesome value. So I hope you get as much out of this as I did. This is The Millennial Crisis by Demi Kotsouros, Wi-Fi not included. Welcome to the studio, Ingrid. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Now, would you like to, I guess, let everyone know what your name is, what you do for work and how old you are? I'm Ingrid Maynard and I have a practice called The Sales Doctor, which really focuses on working with companies both medium and large enterprise-sized companies to help them work with their teams to improve sales team performance. I'm nearly 47. Which is actually insane because if you see a photo of Ingrid, you would not believe that at all. She does not look a day over 30. (laughs) She's just had a hard life. (laughs) (laughs) And um, you're not only a businesswoman, you are also a mother. I sure am. Yes. How old's your son? He was, as he keeps reminding me, he's nearly 18. (laughs) Oh my God. Jimmy. Yes, it's a very challenging role being a mum and and having a business as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit. I know when we spoke prior to this, yeah. um, you've been on a really interesting career journey. Did you want to start off with, I guess, where you got your big break? Okay. I think I had a I've, – I've been really lucky in my life in the sense that I think there's been a number of people who have kind of – stood up and um, pushed me forward even when I really didn't think I could. And so the first time that that happened, well, I'd I'd push myself forward, I guess. So I'd I'd just finished my teaching degree and I was working for the body shop. And, um, you know, God, when I think about the the confidence I had and just, you know, I had nothing to lose. So I rang because I really wanted to be a trainer and I rang head office and uh, spoke to the head of people. Jane Compton was her name and um, I remember saying, look, you don't know me but I work down in the Frankston store and I've just finished my teaching degree and I'd really like to be a trainer and it was almost like she did the the auditory pat on the head, there, there, you know, try to do our training manager program and, you know, come back and see me in 18 months' time and I thought, no, that's I really want to be a trainer now. And Anyway, I was put forward by a person who's been incredible in my life and still is, and he just seems to keep popping up, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't believe in just coincidence. And he um, used to get me to come in and do certain parts of his training, and uh, then I I was asked to fill a maternity position, and um, that was as a training administrator, and I was probably the worst training administrator (laughs) that you've ever seen, hopeless. But I was a really good trainer and so I did all of the courses that no one else wanted to do and then after a year I got my, what was at the time, my dream job which was um, being the, the national trainer for one of their product divisions and, um, you know, I was in heaven. So that was my first big break I think. Amazing. Yeah. And I guess how did you, was it just trialling the kind of training side of things that is what made you realise that that was what you wanted to do? Did you have different dreams and aspirations prior to that? Or did you even know anything about training? No. 
So when when somebody said, so when I was in the middle of my teaching degree, it's possibly the worst time to do teaching because they were closing schools and so the opportunities in Victoria weren't there. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was that I loved the body shop and I loved my, my job there. I loved the company. I loved all of the values that it had. And um, That's right, because you worked there as a just a uh, service assistant yeah, 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 to begin with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, absolutely, just, just I ate it up. I would have worked there for free. I loved it so much. And, and then someone said, well, have you thought about training? And I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I, I was like, well, you know, what is training? And they said, well, it's like teaching, but, um, you, you know, you're teaching about sales or you're teaching about products. And I just thought, wow, so hang on, let me get this straight. So I can work for the company that I love and do and apply my degree. And they went, yep. In fact, most of the people in our department are teachers. And I, so that was my first introduction to training and then we were taught how to be trainers uh, when we joined that team, which was just such an incredible opportunity because there really is um, an art and a science to um, adult education, particularly when you're talking about skills. Um, and so that was, you know, that was the, the next part of my, my, my journey. Uh, it's really interesting because in the second episode of the podcast, uh, we do a bit of, I guess, self-discovery exercises. Wow. And it included um, taking the Sparkotypes test. Have you ever heard of that? No. So a man called um, Jonathan Fields, he has a company called um, The Happiness Project. I yeah. Think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he came up with these things called Sparkotypes. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I've just written that down. Yeah, then, take it. Really and yeah, yeah, and let me know what you get because I'd be interested <laughs> to hear. And yeah. I think as you were telling that story, yeah. I think it just kind of brought me back to thinking about that and that uh, anyone who's listening that under like the first I guess tricky part is actually figuring out what your skills yeah. and passion yes. is to begin with. Yes. And once you know that, you can yeah. start looking for it in work. It's really interesting though, Demi, because I think that that's, that's a lot of what, what um, kids are told and, you know, and I've even said it to my own son, mm. you know, I've been guilty of that. And yet when I look back, I, I don't think it's until you actually – get into something, even if it's not something that you had necessarily thought that you'd be, you know, dreaming of or loving to do. But it, it it's through experience. I can only talk for, my, for myself, but I think it's only through really trying different roles on and working in different organisations that you realise what really matters to you. And, um, you know, and sometimes that can be something that you realise that you really don't want to do. Um, just as much as I think you can sometimes stumble across something that you'd never even known existed. Because, you know, I remember people asking me, you know, when I was at uni, what, what do you want to do? And I started doing marketing only because it, it sounded good, you know, <laughs> but I didn't really know what it was. And then I really followed my heart into teaching, even though there weren't roles at the end of it. And every single time I've done that, where I've really followed something that that just seems right, another door's opened, and it's it's taken me into into that next level of of where I've found myself. Mm, it seems to be a common story for 
everyone that not only I've interviewed, but also uh, successful people in life. I just finished Richard Branson's autobiography and I knew nothing about him at all before reading it. All I knew was he was a billionaire and he owned Virgin Group. (laughs) And then listening to it, he's kind of, he Mm. ends the book with the philosophy of the reason Virgin's been so successful is because at the heart of it, it's fun. And I've always followed what I was, what was fun to me or what I was curious about. And I just think, you know, that's a lesson from a billionaire telling you follow your passions kind of thing, because that's the only way you'll be able to get over life's hurdles is really um, interesting, interesting to know and hear. Now, when you first began telling your story you said that you were very lucky yeah and I love that you said you were lucky but I also think that luck sometimes takes away from the hard work and effort that you would have put in to to the work you do and I think where the luck kind of came into it from from hearing your story is the fact that you stumbled upon something or you were you were told about something that really resonated with that desire to teach and train despite not knowing that that was something you could do versus you just being one good at your job and passionate about your job, even though it wasn't what you thought you needed to do, right? 100%, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and so sometimes uh, if we aren't lucky enough to find out about those things, it's great to have the tools like a Sparker-type test or, you know, taking some time for ourselves to discover that so we can create essentially our own luck. Look, I, I really agree with that and, and, and I guess you're right. The word luck does kind of imply that, oh, I just happened to be there and, you know, someone gave me a leg up. Mm. But I, I really do know that and I guess maybe it's just the, the kind of um, way I've always been. I love to give 100% to everything that I do and I think that when you do that, regardless of whether it's what you always dreamt of or whether it's just the job in front of you, then you you prepare yourself for what comes next. So there's no point in an opportunity coming your way if you're not ready for it. Mm. And so that's where I think that hard work is in always doing your best, you know, no matter what you're actually doing, whether it's, you know, doing an exercise class or whether it's, you know, writing a, a workshop plan or whether it's doing my workbooks or whether it's presenting in front of people or whether it's, you know, working in the store like I was back then, you know, just always trying to do my best. And so then when those opportunities arise, you know, I am, you know, I have been ready for them. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I I. I uh, the reason I say that is because I tend to do that a lot mm. with, with the things I do. Like, you know, right. I was so lucky to have this. And, and it's because also I think um, we're very appreciative of of those things. Mm. But I'm trying now to be like, yes, it was a lucky moment that I got to cross paths with this person. But if I had never done X, Y and Z yeah. before that, yeah. I wouldn't even be in this room yeah. or in this situation. It's true. Um, and yeah, I just think, especially as women, sometimes we we tend to sell ourselves short in some ways, oh right? My God, that's so true. Yeah. Now you mentioned a little bit about having a son, yeah. and <laughs> when we when we chatted, we both kind of came to two different realizations uh, during our conversation, and one of them was I was you know sharing the story of how. I found it was really interesting that my father had always told me, you know, 
take a safe route, take a safe route, um, yeah. get a stable job. It's important to be in money. It always tried to push me down the finance and tax side of things because tax will always be around. People will always have to do their taxes. Dip in taxes, yes. He was more entrepreneurial and always started from nothing, then built his way up and then maybe dropped out of that and then started from some scratch of something else and built it up again. And so what he said and what he did were very contradictory. Yes. And you kind of had this realisation where um, <laughs> you, you were saying that you felt maybe you were doing a similar thing with your son. Mm. Do you want to share a little bit about about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, it's, yeah, you, you're 100% right. So I think, you know, one of the things that I've always tried to get my son to, to do is to study and so forth. And even though he's never been a studier, like mm. he's just never been a student, um, I've, I've constantly pushed that path and, and really tried to open up opportunities for him and get him to think about you know, what he can do and what he can't do. And if one door closes and I've gone down another education route for him. But really, I guess, you know, as we were talking, it it dawned on me that, you know, he's a musician and he's a performer and he has just seen me, I suppose, always doing what I, like I've always created opportunity for myself. And I think that yeah, it's like your dad, like you can say one thing as a parent, but your children look to what you actually do. And so he's just taken that lead, I think, and, and really run with his own, well, he's really running his own race, but that's for a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of his music, absolutely. So he's, you know, he's recorded three albums now and, you know, two in, in two different bands and one as a solo artist and, He's written over 500 songs and he's a great front man. Um, he's also um, just recently completed a short film um, which is going to Tropfest, not as the creator of that that movie but um, as, as an actor within that. And so he's always followed a very creative path. So he's, yeah, he's kind of living how I've lived, I suppose, rather than doing what I like him to do mm. <laughs> so, and know. and yeah it, it's really interesting I think it's one thing for us as a millennial generation or a generation z to understand that sometimes our what our parents say we need to listen to them but also take things with a grain of salt because their experiences dictate what they say and you just want a step you know you've had ups and downs within your career or had to fight extra hard for different things uh, and you just want a more stable life for your son right you want him to be secure and safe and that's it that's all you want for your children is to have an, an easier life than you did and yet the interesting thing is that you know, some of the best lessons that I've had in my life have been have come out of absolute struggle and hardship. Not that I would ever wish that on anyone else, but you know, who am I to say what someone else's journey is going to going to be about? Mm. And you're right about you know listening to your parents, but then really trusting yourself to you know on your own path because. We live in very different times. So what was right for me wouldn't have been right for my mum. And so what's right for Charlie 
you know, might not be something that I can even understand mm. at this point. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. One other thing I really um, admired about your story was down to people. You had this realisation that you needed to find a way to get people engaged in your work and to, and to work not only for you but with you yeah. towards something. Yes. And that came to me through a story you told about uh, – convincing your mother to quit oh. to quit her job yeah, <laughs> yeah. so did you want to share a, yeah. a little bit about that because I think this is a awesome story and especially for your time because these things are very common in the workplace now right. but back then it wasn't a thing was it yeah I guess so I, it's it's interesting because I think I would have said I had nothing to lose mm. um you know I'd just come out of a pretty much escaped from a, a very difficult marriage and um, I literally had nothing. And so I was living back at mum's, which is when you know that you maybe life's not going exactly where, the way that you wanted it to or the way that it should be. But um, anyway, there I was and um, and I'd created a business right before I, I left. And it's funny because I was just, I had nothing to lose, everything to gain. And I just had this real vision for, for what it could be. And I'd, and I'd come from an experience at the body shop where the business is really all about providing an incredible workplace as a point of difference so that you attract really great people to it. And, um, and a big part of it too was about, you know, so I've got this two-year-old Charlie, that's how old he was at the time, um, I didn't want to put him into into childcare. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that was just something I didn't want to do. And my mum was in a very safe, um, safe job. She'd been there for about 15 years at that time. And, um, and I just had this vision of, you know, what if, you know, she left there and she looked after Charlie full time. But in addition to that, what if I paid her to do that? And then I offered free childcare to the people who came to work for me. And that was mum. And it was like a family daycare situation. And so they could come and work with me. They could see their children whenever they wanted to. They were, their children were in a safe environment. Plus, it meant that for Charlie, he had instant playmates who were all around the same age. And I don't know how I did it, but I managed to convince my mum and kudos to my mum really because she had faith in me and she has always trusted me, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And she did. She left her, job, her very, very safe job and came to work for me. And um, And she's not the kind of... She's not one of those nanas who just loves every child. She loves her own grandchild. But, you know, so really when I look back at that, that I don't know how I did it, but we did it. And we did it for about five years until Charlie went to school. Uh, and then my cousin took over from my mum after that, uh, looking after the, the children whose mothers worked for me for the next couple of years until they all started school. And... Um, yeah, and and it managed and it enabled me to get really loyal uh, people in my business. So some of them, I think, the longest tenure was seven years, and then after that, it was like five years, three years, you know, and so on. So I have no doubt that 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 model, which I actually got from the body shop, was a major factor in having that level of depth in my in my team and that 
ability then to to look after our clients in a in a better way because we didn't have high turnover. Amazing. I love that story. I think it's so great. And I guess the body shop was that very different to how a lot of companies worked. Yeah. It was it was interesting because I think that there were competitors that sprung up. Um, around the place, but they didn't get the the essence of what the the company was all about. They just sort of copied their, you know, their reuse, recycle philosophy around their products and and copied some of the product types. But what they didn't get was that the company really walked the talk. And so every Monday at head office, we would have what was called a tribal gathering. And that was where Barry and Graham, who were the two directors in Melbourne uh, for the Australian franchise, would tell us about all of the campaigns that they were supporting and what our latest promotions were. There'd be a real update. And so you'd go away, back to your desk, fully pumped for the week and felt like you belonged to something bigger than you. You belonged to something that you believed in. There was a real values alignment. And so the reason that I worked there was... (laughs) certainly not for the pay, but it really was because I loved being a part of something that I really believed in. Mm. Um, Yeah, and so that was unusual for the time and they did some risky things, um, but they charted new territory. So they they did a program called Trade Not Aid, which was where they, I mean, I, I suppose you'd call that microfinance these days, but what they did was they established trading with with people in third world countries who had to to also promote their natural resources and their natural ingredients um and so that it was a it was a a hand up um rather than a hand out and that I mean that was one of many things but we were also paid to do community projects uh, that was paid time we were encouraged to further our education I mean it was really extraordinary and ongoing was the professional development as well. So I can't even begin to tell you the impact that that's continued to have on my life. Mm. Uh, amazing. And it and it is, it just kind of reiterates the fact that you, sh- I think a lot of workplaces these days have almost uh, you should be grateful I've given you a job attitude sometimes and you know um, it's like well working nine to five that's the requirement you know this is what you're required to do but I think if people took like you said those Monday morning meetings everyone has Monday morning meetings but a lot of the time Monday morning meetings are a jet like your agenda for the week like this is what you need to achieve for the week versus this is what's happening with the company this is what you, you know, this is where we're going. This is where we're driving to. This is what the bigger picture looks like. And that's what's going to get you through those mundane, everyday little tasks that you need to do. It's so important for businesses and and directors and and owners to take take more time to invest in their employees to help motivate them and push them, especially in today's day and age in trying to get millennials and Generation Z motivated in the workplace because we don't stay in the job if we don't see these tiny little little things. Um, and, And so taking an hour out of your day to be able to invest in your employees so that they can invest it back in you is quite crucial. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So you love the body shop so much. Yes. (laughs) Why, why leave? 
Oh, so I, I again, that, that person that I said, you know, used to get me to, to train a, a part of, of his course because he, he didn't really want to do it. <laughs> um, he was also instrumental in me getting an incredible opportunity, which was to work for Body Shop International in the UK. And so he put this... This job on my desk and um, and I said, oh, is that, f- that for me? And he said, yeah, yeah, no, it is. And I said, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> he said, of course you can. It's, it's the same as stores, it's just markets. And it was for a market sales manager's role for the product division that I specialised in um, and my markets were Australia and Canada. And um, anyway, I, I got it. And um, and so I moved over to the UK, but they were restructuring at the time and they were getting ready for um, a sale, which we didn't know at the time, but they were, they were getting ready for a, a sale to L'Oreal. And so uh, they were streamlining the business and the product division that I'd worked for was no longer um, as large as it was. So it was being brought under the banner of all of the other product ranges. And so my job was redundant and so I came back to Australia um, and it was kind of like well I'm ruined Mm. for working for anyone else because that was it for me and so I knew that it was going to have to be something that I created from that point on I mean I did work for two other organizations after that but I knew in my heart of hearts that that's what I really wanted to do. Mm. Yeah. And it seems like that was, I'm sure it didn't seem like it at a time, but it was a blessing in disguise, right? Yeah. Now you get to do what you're passionate about and for yourself by your own rules and yes. things like that. And I'm sure that hasn't been easy, no. but um, it's funny how these little tragedies that yeah. seem like in the moment end up leading to great, great successes, which yeah. is which is really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that it's taught me is an incredible belief in myself where I know that whenever my back's against the wall, I can create something from nothing. And that's an incredibly um, reassuring knowledge. And so it, it probably the thing that scares me most or would scare me most would be working for somebody else because you're then at the liberty of what's going on for for that organisation and the the locus of control is totally external. And so for me, I know I can back myself, I can trust myself and I know that, you know, I can grow the business to whatever level I want to um, based on, you know, I guess what what my goals are and where I want to take it. Having belief in yourself and your abilities is something that I guess you you can't necessarily be taught but it's something that we need to put more value on and encourage this self-confidence a lot more because it does change the trajectory of your life so much I think and once you start slowly coming to that realization that you don't have to be born with some special skill or someone doesn't have to paint like wave a magic wand and you suddenly become this special person that can achieve things it's in everyone right sometimes it just you know it takes a a scenario or it takes a person or it takes a experience to have you realize that and especially in today's day and age things change rapidly so in or if you can 
have that belief in yourself that you can do whatever and you can adapt to whatever change and have that outlook and perspective, yeah. then the world's your oyster. You can do whatever you want, yes. right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's awesome and it's something that I'm trying to learn you but are. it is so it's it. so difficult though and I think it's mm. one of the reasons why it is important to have those people around you who do reassure you in those times. Yeah. Like your mum quitting oh. her job would have been a huge point oh. in your life where you were like, oh, my God, like my mum believes in me so much this can't fail. That's right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So or no pressure, that, right? that, that yeah. person in your life that kept putting these op- – giving these opportunities oh. to you and reassuring you that yeah. like, no, no, you can do it. Can do it's it. okay. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think we need to also repay that back to people and take the time. If you see someone – that is doing a great job, even if it's at a restaurant or a cafe and they look miserable, just to tell them like, yeah. you're doing really great. That's like, right. you know, or you're wearing a killer outfit yeah. or because we don't know the impact that little things like that will yeah. happen, have on people. Uh, Demi, I love what you've just said because for me, I think it's about, you're right. I mean, people believed in me before I could believe in myself, but breathing belief into other people um, from what you observe of them it is really powerful because it gives it, it opens up that that belief within themselves sometimes sometimes it doesn't but I think when when it's coming from a from a deep place of observation and you can see the possibility in them um, sometimes you know that that ignites something within them that perhaps would have would have remained latent um, without that you know that that breathing of that belief into them, and and that is something that I find with the role that I have now, with with the training that I do, it is such a privilege to watch people grow into more than they knew that they could, and find capability within themselves that you know uh, uh, had they not had or been forced into a situation where they had to practice some new skills or or seen themselves in a in a new environment or in a different way that perhaps they wouldn't have had that belief in themselves but sometimes just breathing that belief into somebody which is very different to just paying someone a compliment it's it's more about what you see in them that they can't yet see for themselves and um yeah I I really I love what you've just said I I think that's incredibly powerful and I think we sometimes underestimate that power and so we we don't say stuff when we really should 100% yeah yeah for sure I went before I had kind of released this podcast this podcast had taken me two years to even get out I'd been planning and recording and conducting interviews for a long time and one of the things I had done was um, interviewed friends families and strangers and at the end of the interviews I asked them a few questions about myself so from people who knew me from people that hadn't known me ever um, first impressions kind of things and it was like um, what do you what do you think i could do as a career or I do as a career and then one of the things were um you know what's my biggest strength and what's my biggest weakness especially to my friends and family and it was so interesting when they spoke about what my strengths were that they were things that I had never considered strengths or seen in myself or when they spoke about what career path I could have when I said pick anything, like it doesn't matter what qualifications I have or anything, pick something for me. The things that came up for them was like, oh, other people see that in me. I didn't 
you know, I didn't think that I could do that or um, try those things. And it, it was it was really, really interesting and it was something that I would do back in turn to them or mm. try and create those conversations with people because it did so much for me yeah. that you just want to make sure that you can do that for other people. Absolutely. Uh, it's awesome, the power of a little belief in someone, you know. Yeah. Oh, no question. Uh, so let's get into what you do now and more importantly, the approach you take to training because yeah. it's not... It's not just training no. you do. Yeah, let, let's talk about um, what you do and your, I guess, philosophy. Sure. So so my philosophy is really, I mean, I could go on a rant about service, <laughs> but to me, you know, service is really about, about showing up um, to do something for somebody else, to help them do more than what they're capable of doing. And so, you know, for me in the sales realm, um, I have a I have a bit of a mission to to bring back service. So, I work with companies to really help them improve sales performance. And so, in order to do that, there's nothing that I mean. Look, you can have off the shelf programs, but I've always found that in order to to really for a company to really have something that's lasting and meaningful for them, it needs to be a bespoke program that becomes theirs, that is significant buy-in across the leadership group and then down um, so that the leaders, in fact, become drivers of the program long after I've finished with them. So all of the work that I do is totally deeply consultative um, with, with my clients. And so it's developed primarily based on NLP principles. So I'm a, a certified NLP coach and practitioner. And what that means is really about changing behaviour and embodying behaviour that's going to be effective for whatever the outcome that you need to achieve needs to be. So the program's really behaviourally based and so it's highly interactive and it covers a, a, a range of different approaches. So it's a combination of workshops so that there's um, the opportunity for individuals to learn from one another, to, to practice in a safe environment, to embody some of those behaviours so that they get a sense of what that's actually like before they take that out and work with customers on that. There's a leadership component to that too so that the leaders become better leaders, coaches and managers in that sales space and so that they can they can coach and observe their teams um, conducting the program in field. But then I also work quite closely with them in field observation as well. So I, I, I go out and I spend some time with salespeople so that I can watch what they're planning to do, how they're executing their plans and then, you know, coach in the moment, which is really powerful. So most of that work is, you know, it's over time. Most of my programs are at least 12 months, usually um, 18 months to two years. And that's because for, for something to be truly effective and to shift the needle more permanently it needs to be conducted over time yeah and and that's amazing and it's also um very I guess for lack of a better word very ballsy of you to say that it takes time yeah because everyone wants a quick fix these days and everyone is selling a quick fix and so for you to believe in your philosophy and believe in your training so much to Mm. say listen 
it's an investment yeah. in the future and, and in your business and in your people. Yes. You know, this is what it requires and this is how long it takes um, is incredible. And I, I think that only comes from being passionate about your work, right, and believing yeah. in it so much that yeah. you can fight for these things mm. that com- allow you to compete with these, you know, one month or Fourteen day trials because I'm sure that people mm. would cut it down to two weeks or, or whatever or they even could. Our yeah, workshop, one day workshop. You know, crazy. Yeah, yeah that there's yeah, there's no such thing as a silver bullet and and it's really interesting. So I was speaking with a, a car company who shall remain nameless uh, the other the other week and um, and this sales leader was telling me that you know when they're when they're talking to their dealerships and getting them to try to buy into some of the initiatives that their sales team is suggesting in order for them to sell more cars, you know, these dealerships have seen salespeople come and go. And so if they're going to have real influence, they need to build trust over time. And then he tries to tell me that, you know, he wants a a program conducted over two days and that's going to fix all of their problems. And I just said, so you've just told me that trust has developed over time so you would appreciate then that any kind of really truly transformative program is going to happen over time as well. And he and he, it was like a light bulb moment for him and he appreciated that, okay, if we start with a two-day workshop, perhaps then we can, we can continue on with that program with some infield coaching. Mm. But it was incredible because even though he knows mm. that that's what's required, there is, there is just this um, hope, I suppose, that if we throw some money at it, um, and we get somebody in for a day, uh, then that's going to be a bit of a feel good and it's going to plug the gap for, for a time and we'll get an uplift, which you do. But what happens with one day or two day workshops only is that then performance can actually drop before, like lower than the sales performance before those workshops, which is really not great. So it does give people a bit of a, a shot in the arm, but when we're, when we're really wanting to, to change the way that people show up to their customers and we want them to be there for their customers and have the skills to engage, connect and then take their customers to where perhaps they didn't even think that they, they could go, we need to really arm them with a set of new behaviours and that, and that takes time to, to um, integrate so that it becomes part of their normal behaviours. For sure. And I call it the uh, diet, diet pill effect. Right. Because, you know, there was there's a, always a quick fix for dieting, right? There's a quick fix for losing weight and everyone <laughs> wants to sell you the magical pill yeah. that's going to get make you achieve your, your you know, weight goals and things like that and, and people fall uh, – trapped to it all the time and the the real thing is we all know the answer of how to get healthier yeah eat better and move you know and and yeah those things take time for you to to get there but there's never a quick fix because like you mentioned yeah it may work for building motivation for maybe the day the hour the week that's right but then people drop straight down and that's what happens with these kind of crash diets they yo-yo up you know they lose all the weight and then they crash and they gain it and some more back in the end uh, instead of creating a long sustainable lifestyle change sustainable is the word and and I think that the focus for anything that I do with my clients has to be about 
um, really shifting that that needle, that set point. So, like, if we use the weight analogy, yeah, you know, of course, you know, if you can take some laxatives, you can, you know, just not eat or go to the the sauna, you can lose weight really quickly. But if you're not really changing the reasons that you are that weight in the first place, and and then consistently doing something differently there there on in you're just going to seesaw and that's the same with sales results and so when everything's fine nobody thinks to really invest in their people and then when things aren't fine they suddenly panic and reach out for someone like me to come in and fix everything but there's no point in fixing something if it's there's not not going to be uh, the resources or the appetite there to support that program from a leadership perspective and on a day-to-day perspective with, you know, systems and tools and templates and processes and and leadership that's going to reinforce those new behaviours too so that they do end up with a, a higher set point, not only in terms of the, the outcomes that they get but the journey towards those outcomes so that the customer experience is improved as well. Mm. Amazing. And another thing that's really interesting is that we come from two, I guess sometimes within a company, they're rivalry departments because sales and marketing from, you know, when I teach my intro classes and things like a lot of people like, you know, the I'm from sales team and I'm here to learn about marketing because the marketing team talk gibberish to me and I don't understand, you know, or, you know, I need, I bring in all these leads and then sales don't deliver and then it reflects on me and you know I don't get the bonus or the raise that I just know I deserve because they're not pulling their weight and then vice versa marketing's not bringing in enough why aren't why don't I have anything to do and things like that and um from from uh speaking with you it was that uh a, a lot of people ask me like how do I you know, I can bring people into the store with great images or, you know, clever marketing and things like that. But if the service and the quality of food and product isn't great, then what, like, what do I do? And I've tried to give people little tactics on how you can slowly let people know, like, if you go, let's say we'll use a coffee shop, for example, they do coffee and pastries, they have disgusting coffee you've tried it you know but they do beautiful pastries and you know roundabout ways of telling people let's just sell the pastries to begin with and then let them know that online there's been a few complaints about the coffee barista you know things like that maybe it's time to change and I guess from your perspective what what does do you hear a lot of of the rivalries or do you see a lot of businesses that don't collaborate with each department and how that affects sales? 100%. So so I think it's really interesting, like when you were talking about, you know, just that, you know, going back to the body shop and, you know, that lack of investment in the people, I think that that's then been reflected in, you know, really poor customer experience. And so... What I noticed was that the investment in people stopped about 20 years ago, I know I'm old, but it stopped about 20 years ago when everyone started to think that marketing alone was the answer. Mm -hmm. And so they thought that, well, look, you know, the argument that the companies gave was, look, customers are educated, they're doing their research, they know what they want, all we've got to do is bring them in to the business, um, either digitally or with advertising or some other form of promotion or marketing, 
and then they can serve themselves. Um, and we've just got to make it easy for them to buy. And what they're finding is that in a world of increased competition where there's just so much noise, how do you really get cut through? And there is nothing that really replaces that person-to-person experience. So you can bring somebody into the business, but if their experience of that business, whether that be with a product or or even with a person within that business or organisation is poor, then it's a waste of marketing dollars, number one, and it's a really expensive way of trying to, you know, to continue to generate business. So the business becomes unprofitable very, very quickly. So I think that when marketing and sales work hand in hand because they understand that sales is the lifeblood of the business, it's the oil um, that turns the engine. Without sales, you don't have a business. Nobody gets paid and bills don't get paid. So you need that money, but sales and marketing have to work hand in hand. So there needs to be an understanding of who our customer is and how we engage with them before they get to the business. And then once they get to the business, how do we continue to create that brand experience so that the customer leaves with a with a, a feeling and with a with a memory of what it's like to work with that business. So particularly if there's multiple locations with that business or multiple contact points, regardless of the contact point, they know that they've worked with that business because the experience of that brand has been significant and that's both sales and marketing's responsibility. It is so important for us to collaborate, to understand that both are valuable in their own way and the only way to progress is to work together as a whole, which is which is one thing that I've really noticed throughout. And I think early on in my career when I, you know, was trying to get freelance gigs and things like that, I always had a sales and marketing hat yes. in doing it. And that was the only thing that set me apart and probably got me a lot of jobs that I shouldn't have gotten in terms of like I probably did not have the, you know, qualification to to be able to be handling Mm. these these things in business but always does come back to the people and time, unfortunately. yeah. No, look, it really does and it's about understanding where your customers are going to be having conversations about what it is that you do and, and then making sure that your marketing and your sales strategy is aligned to that. So, for example, like so going back to my first business where I was trying to attract really good people, um, one of the things that I would do was I knew that my market was kind of mums returning to work and, um, and so because we were down on the Mornington Peninsula, I had a point of difference as an employer because there were so many hairdressers, there were heaps of real estate agents, um, but there wasn't a lot for professional women, particularly professional women who didn't want to travel into the city every day but wanted to be fulfilled um, in their roles. And so in terms of attracting good talent, I never used an agency because I knew that my target market read the Lifestyle magazine from down that way and so I would do regular advertorials um, citing you know and using my my existing team to talk about their experience in my business and and it was called Harvest and that would inevitably have a call to action at the end of that advertorial and that's where we got most of our really good quality and long-lasting employees so even from that sort of target market. It's about understanding 
where they're going to be looking and then making sure that the messages are, are, are fit for purpose so that, you know, they're, yeah, you, you're actually achieving what you, what you set out to. Everything you're saying is, is so awesome and I think it's so valuable for people to hear uh, because it is, it is so important to finish off. Let's get on to my questions. Yes. Okay. The first one is what was the first small step you took to achieve the path you're currently on now? I just love throwing myself in at the deep end and seeing what I'm capable of. So Saying yes, it seems. Yes, yeah. yes, saying yes, especially when it's scary. So I think that for me the first step that I like to take is not necessarily setting myself a big goal but when something challenging comes my way, saying yes to it and mm. And if I get that scared reaction, I know that it's probably good for me because it's going to really push me. And I try to think about myself at the other end of that and how I'm going to feel. And that sometimes gets me through that. Maybe honouring the fact that I just needed to have my own business. I think the first step was just going, look, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. Mm. And that was the last business that I had. But because of that, I think that, you know, I... I, I just then took the next step and then the next step and then the next step. And I I just I've, – I've always sort of waited for the next sort of – not sign because it makes it sound really wanky. But, <laughs> and, and I think had I ignored that, yeah, I don't, I don't know who I'd be today mm. if I was working for somebody else. I mm. just don't know. And I think being my age now, being nearly 47, I think that that would be – left on the table and that would be really sad Mm, yeah for sure Mm. I think regret's scarier than taking and saying yes right yes because I just knew that I I just needed to do it and whether it failed or whether it thrived Mm. I just needed to do it it was a need yeah Yeah. look I think if you're if you know that you've got a business in you you owe it to yourself to just give it a go because if it does fail well at least you've done it yeah but it's probably not going to if it's a burning desire because you'll find a way a second question is uh what would you consider your biggest millennial crisis at the moment now a millennial crisis is a a privileged problem i think my millennial crisis is And I feel, again, I just feel very privileged when I say this now, but, you know, where's my next holiday going to be? Because I have to force myself to have a holiday. So it needs to be something that's compelling for me to take time away from my business to, to go to. And gee, that sounds like, gee, Ingrid, what a hard life. And, and, and I don't have a, I don't think I have a terribly privileged life at all. But when I hear myself say that, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's not a bad problem to, to have, have, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And to get that perspective, so I think that that's perhaps that's the that's the privilege is using holidays to get some perspective around you know what I need to do next. And then finally, what is one thing uh, you are still curious about or want to explore? There's two things really. I, I've started doing a lot more speaking and that's something that I have a great passion for because, again, I think that's a, that's an incredible privilege and I love opportunities that I don't necessarily go seeking but kind of come to me 
and that's where I know that they're right and that I'm on the right path and and that seems to be um, opening doors. So I'm doing a lot of speaking on panels, I'm doing a lot of keynote speaking, doing a lot of conference work for organisations and most of it's kind of got some relation to or relationship to either women in leadership or sales. So that's certainly um, something that I'm very curious about. And the skill set's different from facilitation to speaking, which is really good because I feel like I'm, you know, back at square one learning <laughs> that that craft. And the second one is I've started writing a book as well. So that's certainly something that I'm incredibly curious about because what the world doesn't need is another how to sell book. So <laughs> it really it's it's really starting to morph into into something that's more than that. So it it won't just be a, a business book. It it will certainly be a a little bit more than that and I hope that it can be something that is practical, insightful and um enables people to to perhaps look at the their their lives in a, in a slightly different way and then take that forward into either their own business or into their into their careers. Amazing. Well, after our discussion today, I'm sure that that book is going to be incredible and I can't wait till it's finished so I can have a little read of it as well because um, I'm sure there's many gems that will be um, placed in there. Like I said, I am so grateful and, and happy that you accepted my invitation to come onto the mm-hmm. podcast because honestly, meeting you and, and speaking with you, not only have I learnt a lot uh, through through your story, but also there's been some valuable lessons and and admirable qualities that I see in you that I'm so excited to follow where the rest of your career goes. And mm. I'm honestly so uh, grateful for you for you coming on and sharing all of the things that you have. So where can people find you and find out more about uh, what you do and um, how to get in touch with you? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn uh, as Ingrid Maynard, but the easiest way to contact me is through the website, which is www.thesalesdoctor, and doctor is dr, so thesalesdoctor.com.au, and all my contact information's on there, and I'd absolutely love to hear from anyone, and if they'd like to make a time with me to, to have a chat over a coffee, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. And thanks so much for inviting me. It's really been a privilege All of uh, Ingrid's information will be in the show notes below. So um, be sure to take a look and and stay up to date with what she is doing. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute honour and pleasure to have you on and hear about your next holiday (laughs) where you decide to go. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Another special thanks to Ingrid for coming on the podcast. Please be sure to check her out and support her in any way. I'm really excited to see some of the things that will be coming out for her very soon. In regards to a challenge for this week, I really loved the conversation and kind of an aha moment I had with Ingrid about what parents say versus what they do and the things that us as children pick up on. And I recently listened to a podcast that spoke a lot about self-limiting beliefs and how family perspective can have a huge impact on that. So let's say if your parent never had a steady job, 
in your life, that might be something that you're really looking for is stability because you went through a lot of struggles because of that parent. And so what I want this week's challenge to be is just to look at that parent or adult figure in your life and see the things that they've done and what they've kind of said to you. And if that is affecting the way you conduct yourself in the workplace or make choices in your career or your life, whether that means it's holding you back or the opposite of that. If you want full details of the challenge, please check out the blog uh, link in the bio. Uh, But I'm really excited to hear about your insights into this. I'd be so curious to hear different people's stories and what they think, I guess, their parents' actions and words have affected their career paths. And not to look at it in a negative way, just to be aware of it and then to be able to make new decisions because of this new awareness you have. Because I think this challenge could also go south with people just blaming their parents for things. But I definitely want to make this a really positive thing. So no one's perfect. If you do come to any interesting finds, please DM me. I'd love to know and to open up the conversation there or send me an email via the website. Really interested to hear what you think about that. But that's the end of episode six. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I will see you next week for bonus episode six. Bye.